So today we're jumping into beginning of 1 Samuel chapter number 18. What I'm calling the marks of a godly friend. The marks of a godly friend. And we're going to get through actually a, a few stories of David and Jonathan this week. And what we're actually going to do is I'm, I want to contrast Jonathan with his father, Saul. Uh, we're going to see what toxic relationships look like. And we're going to see what true godly biblical friendship looks like. And then we're going to reflect on these things in the context of our relationship with God. And so I'm um, going to give you a little bit of a heads up as we go through um, something a little bit different. Um, as we go through some of the stuff that's going to be on the screen, um, we're going to keep up kind of these statements as we go throughout the day, uh, as we go throughout this morning. I, I want you to see and understand this as we compare and contrast what toxic relationships versus true friendships look like, how they behave. As we do so, my primary challenge to you is this. Are you being a true friend to those around you? Okay? Are you being a true friend to those around you? And what are qualities that we look for in the people that we decide to not just know, but actually spend our lives with? Did you, um, I've heard many psychologists and writers um, refer to some of the things that we're experiencing right now as a loneliness epidemic. A loneliness epidemic. 60% of Americans say that they feel lonely on a regular basis. So not just every once in a while, but consistently feel lonely. 60%. Um, The Survey Center on American Life put out this survey um, called the State of American Friendship. This was in 2021. The results were published last year in 2022. And they were comparing it to the year 1990. In the year 1990, these are adults that are surveyed. In the year 1990, only three adults, or 3%, excuse me, of adults, said that they did not have any close friends. Today, it's up to 12% of adults, and this is excluding family members. So outside of their family, 12% of adults say they don't have any close friends. Um, Back in 1990, over a third of Americans said that they had enough close friends. Um, and some of them even determining that as 10 or more, but 30, over, over a third. Today, that number is less than a seventh. And so whether or not we have as many friends or the quality of friends or what that actually looks like, today, for whatever reason, our culture is less satisfied with the friendships that we have, which is really ironic to me because there are more ways to connect and yet fewer connections. In fact, some of you guys may have caught on the news this week. How many of you guys heard a new social media site launched this week? I mean, some of you are just unsurprised by that, even if you didn't know it. But literally, um, Facebook's parent company, Meta, launched a brand new social media service just this week. Already has millions of users on the platform. Um, and, And in fact, if we start naming and thinking about social media platforms and places that people can interact socially with each other, we have things like Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, Messenger, WeChat, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Telegram, Reddit, Pinterest, Twitter, Teams, Quora, Skype, Good Night, Twitch, Discord, Pixar, Vivo, Tumblr, Threads, that's the new one that launched, okay, literally like this week, um, 
These are just about half of the ones that exist with over, you ready for this? A hundred million active users. A hundred million people actively involved in these platforms. Social media is, is just, and it's a wonderful tool, okay? Um, I'm not, this is not a message, thou shalt not social media. Um, but isn't it incredible how there are more ways for us to connect? Because in 1990, how many of these social media platforms existed? Uh, zero, right? <laughs> and this isn't saying, oh, we, the past is whatever. That's not my point today, and you're going to see it. The fact is, is that means of connection and methods of connection and number of connections do not automatically equate to godly friendship. You follow me? And so as we examine these things today, I want to take a look at this man, Jonathan, and his friend that we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, David. As we dig into this, I want to begin with the foundation of true friendship in chapter number 18, verse number 1. This is immediately after David has killed Goliath, the giant that had spoken up and come out against the armies of Israel. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the son of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul went so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so here we meet Jonathan, but one thing that's not yet mentioned about Jonathan is who um, Jonathan actually is. Jonathan, if you're not familiar, is actually the son of Saul. Not only is he the son of King Saul, but later it's kind of revealed to us that he is the heir apparent of King Saul. So likely the eldest son, the one that is uh, primed to inherit the kingdom. One of the things that we're going to get into a little bit more depth with later that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in 1 Samuel 16, Saul is not going to continue to be the king in Israel. Who's going to be the king? David is. David is. And so now we have Jonathan, the one who grew up thinking he was going to be the next king, and David, the one who never thought he would be king, but has now been anointed by God to step into that role. Secularly thinking, we would expect these two to be rivals, enemies. They have interests that conflict. But what do we see between David and Jonathan here in chapter number 18? Jonathan hears David's words. And what are David's words? This is how David is speaking about the God of Israel, how God is giving him victory, how God was providing and taking care of, and how God was going to do this work through him to defeat this giant. Jonathan hears all of these things, watches David go do that, and then what immediately goes off inside of Jonathan? He says, this guy, he's my people. This guy, this is who I want to be friends with. 
He hears the way that David speaks of God, the way that David sees and understands what God is doing in the world. And Jonathan says, I want to be a part of that. And so all throughout David and Jonathan's friendship, we see the foundation of Christ's likeness, the foundation of God, obedience to God and to his word over and over and over again. And can I say this first and foremost, godly relationships are built on Jesus. Godly relationships are built on Jesus. You may be in here today and you might say, um, how many of you, let's, let's, let's do it this way. How many of you are sports fans? You say, hey, I'm a sports fan. I'll talk sports with you. How many of you say, I am not a sports fan. Go team, go, I guess. Okay, super. The fact is, is oftentimes um, those of us who like sports are into sports. We like to talk about sports, right? Um, in a couple of months, you will not be able to get me to shut up about Michigan football. But can I say this? And this takes a lot for me. I would rather be friends with a Buckeyes fan that loves Jesus, if there is such a thing. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I would rather be friends with a Buckeyes fan that loves Jesus than a Michigan fan that wants nothing to do with him. You hear me? Because our deep godly friendships are not based on what teams we cheer for or even our shared interests. They're built on Jesus Christ. And so some of the people that I have just had, the connection, had a connection with most deeply and quickly, English isn't even their first language, but they love Jesus. And they want to, when, they, when they do speak in English, they want to talk about him. And it's a beautiful thing. Because the fact is, is, as believers in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, our identity is not the place that we were born or even the place that we live, but our identity is the way that we were born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so godly relationships, first and foremost, are built on this. From here, I want to launch into what we're seeing. So we begin today, I want to begin with an understanding of this. True friendships celebrate while toxic relationships compare. True friends celebrate while toxic relationships compare. Watch with me. We'll dig into this. Verses 1 through 5, we already read together, but what do we see? We see David, this man who was anointed as king and then now has a great military victory over Goliath. Jonathan is the son of Saul. In fact, in chapter number 20, verse number um, 31, if you want to see it, he's the heir apparent of the kingdom. Saul looks at him and says, don't you know you'll never be king as long as David's around? Attempting to set his own son at odds with his friend. Throughout all of these different um, interactions we're going to look at today, Jonathan is almost like, um, in, a, in a comedy, he's almost like the straight man. The guy that is, is kind of sane and stable, and we're going to see some insanity around Saul, around especially Saul, although it's not quite as funny as the sitcoms that you might be used to. But Jonathan's sanity is going to help us see Saul's insanity. And what here is Jonathan's response to David's victory? We see immediately that he is knit to David. Verse number one of chapter 18, the soul, this innermost being, his soul was knit together with David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And watch what he says in verse number three. He made a covenant with David. Not just a promise, but a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan, he takes his, his robe, this royal robe. He takes his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. And if he's the son of the king, he's got, this is not a cheap gift, is this? He here is saying, David, I desire your well-being. These are weapons of war. Not only that, but these are the finest weapons of war that exist in this kingdom. And I want you to have these and you to take these. And so we see, we see Jonathan, as David has won this victory, as David is rising through the ranks, how does Jonathan respond to that? Does Jonathan say, oh man, this David guy is going to be a problem for me? Now, worldly speaking, is David going to be a problem for Jonathan? You and I, if we look at our futures and say, wow, Jonathan ought to be looking out for his own best interests, is David going to be a problem? Sure. Saul thought so. And Saul began to behave not in a godly way, but in a toxic way. Because toxic relationships do what? They compare. They look and say, what's good for me is not good for him and vice versa. And what does Saul do? Watch this in verse 6 as we see it play out. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy, musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. So there's this whole like, parade coming through the city, and they're singing this catchy song. Saul has struck down his thousands. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good praise, right? If you're a soldier and you struck down thousands, wow, that's pretty incredible. Yay, Saul. And then they finished the verse with David, his ten thousands. Hold on, wait, what? Excuse me? How does Saul respond to that? Does Saul say, oh yeah, good for David. Man, he really stepped up today. God used him. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they have ascribed only thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And he eyed David from that day on. You see, in the middle of this, prior to this point, what did Saul do? Until this happens, what hap what's taking place? Verse number two, Saul says, hey, David, you're one of my guys now. Jonathan loves you. The people love you. This is great. You're going to come. You're going to stay with me. Until the fact that he rose up through the armies of Israel. We see in the verses just before. But now, all of a sudden, when he puts it in context, this comparison begins to ruin the community that used to exist. Now he's looking at David and saying, he's going to take my kingdom from me. In fact, he almost already has. Because of a song? After a battle? Are you kidding me? But Saul didn't care. Saul was toxic in the way that he saw this. And this is the beginning for Saul. Um, we're going to see it play out over the next several weeks. This is the beginning for Saul of what we might call um, a victim mentality. 
Now, now understand this as I use this phrase. I'm, I'm very conscious of using this phrase because this is not to say that there are not people that are actually victims of specific circumstances, okay? You track with me? But there's a difference between a mentality of a victim. This means I'm going to find reasons that I am a victim whether or not I actually am. Um, first of all, that dismisses and discounts people who actually have been through traumatic events. But now Saul is borrowing this and beginning to, the king, you understand this, the king is throwing a pity party. That's what's happening here. I just imagine the people around him have to be kind of looking at him out of the corner of their eye going, really? You're the king and you're, you're the one that's pouting about this? About this kid? That's not, so Saul here, watch this, he's choosing to blame others choosing to blame others for the results that his actions brought on. Who could have gone out and fought Goliath? Who should have gone out and fought Goliath? Saul. And yet Saul passed on the opportunity. So David goes out and does it. And now Saul is jealous that David did the thing that Saul was supposed to do. How long had Goliath, did David just stumble upon Goliath and, oh man, he got there before me. Hello, 40 days that he was watching and sitting on the sideline. But now it's David's fault that Saul didn't do his job. You see what I'm saying? But he begins to look at David and he begins to eye David and become jealous of David. This is like, this is like the person that never returns messages, <laughs> never wants to talk, complaining about not having friends, right? <laughs> I don't want to talk to anybody, but I want more friends. Um, or, or even, uh, this is like, this is like us as a church. An un, if we were an unfriendly church, not preparing for outsiders and those that are far from God to walk into this place so that they may hear the gospel. Can I, can I tell you this? That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They won't. Okay. If you walk into a place and you're not welcome, you don't come back unless there's something really wrong with you. <laughs> And so what we see is we see that here Saul begins to bemoan what he's reaping, but in reality he's reaping what? What he sowed. He passed on the opportunity and the responsibility, and now he's mad that someone else is reaping the things that they sowed while he's reaping what he did. And to Saul, the only advice I could think to give is, if you don't like the harvest you're getting, maybe change the seed you're sowing. But Saul doesn't care. This is the beginning of the end for him. And uh, really, we talked about the beginning of it. This is like the middle of the end for Saul. Not only that, but watch this. Toxic relationships devour while true friends defend. Leave that up for a few minutes for me. Toxic relationships devour. True friends defend. So now, watch this. Saul now is afraid of David, verse number 12. And in fact, in the middle here, after he's angry, um, the next day, verse 10, a harmful spirit from God comes on Saul. He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And first of all, it's just that little sentence right there. David evaded him twice, excuse me? 
you throw a spear at me once, I'm not coming back. Okay? But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand. And so he sent him out and said, David, here's a responsibility. It's going to keep you so busy. Ah, oh, what a shame. You'll never be around here anymore. And so watch what takes place. Verse number 17, Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Remember that when he defeated Goliath, there was a promise that he would marry into the king's family. But watch this. Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. So even as, Dave, as Saul is doing this, Saul's not saying, hey, welcome to the family, son. And what's Saul doing? He's playing games. He wants to devour David, but he knows if he actually kills David, now that he's tried to do it a couple of times, he says, oh, you know what? Maybe if other people find out about that, it won't be good for me. So what if the Philistines, our enemies, kill him instead? So what do they do? What does he do? David said to Saul, who am I? Who are my relatives? My father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king. By the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. And so Saul actually betrays David here and gives his daughter to someone else. But Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. They told Saul the thing pleased him. He says, oh, this is going to be good. Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. The hand of the Philistines might be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, now you should be my son-in-law. Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And so David at this point had been resisting, saying, I'm not worthy to marry into the king's family. I'm not worthy to marry into the king's family. And so Saul sends messengers, says, go to David and just nudge him, push him along. Uh, tell him, oh, yeah, I know you are, David. You should absolutely do this. And so they go and they do these things. David still pushes back. Does it just seem to you a little thing to become this king's son-in-law? I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. And so Saul does this. Saul, Saul comes up with an idea. Verse 25, he says, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price. And so David says, listen, you think it's easy to become a son-in-law to a king at this time, especially their dowries? So you're paying to marry um, th this daughter. And, and he says, listen, I don't have any wealth. I don't have any ability. I don't have any gifts that I can give as my gratitude to the king. Are you kidding me? I'm poor. I don't have anything. All I do is fight. And they said this to Saul. And Saul says, ah, yes, tell this to David. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Without going into too much detail, you don't just bargain for this. So what's David being asked to do? He's being told to go out and to kill a hundred Philistines. Sound like a good deal? I mean, for Saul it is. Best case, hundred Philistines die. Or worst case, I guess, for him, hundred Philistines die. Best case, David dies. Go out there and take down a hundred Philistines. And what does he do? He passes this along. Why? Because he wants David dead. He wants David dead. And so David goes out. And when his servants told these words, verse 26, I love this. It pleased David well <laughs> to be the king's son-in-law. He's like, oh, okay, that's a good deal. <laughs> I don't know. Something's wrong with David. 
So he arose and went along with his men. They didn't kill 100. They killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Don't think too long about it, but uh, someone had to count those. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. What had David done? What had David done? Had David sought to betray Saul? Had David tried to take the kingdom from him? David was anointed, yes. But was David sitting there going, hmm, if I can just get Saul alone, I can kill him. Who's trying to kill whom? Saul's the one attempting to devour. And he's putting his own children in the middle of this. He's putting this man David in the middle of this. But there, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Saul's anger. But watch this actually even before we get to uh, verse 28. Watch verse 28. Um, uh, let's back up. Verse 26. Saul did not say anything that day. He thought something has happened to him. And so David now has hidden himself here. Jonathan is in the uh, presence. There's a meal that's going on. Saul did not say anything. He thought, surely something has happened. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. And so ceremonially clean, he's not able to actually come and participate in this meal today. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. I'm way ahead of you guys. Are you guys all lost? I think my, I think my page, my bad guys. I'm totally way ahead of you guys. Good night. You're all wondering. You're like, oh man, I must be totally confused. No, it's me. I think my page blew or something or other because I'm in the totally wrong verse. Because what we're looking for here is we're looking for the end of the uh, Philistine conversation. Okay, watch this. Verse 29, Saul, this is verse chapter 18. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. The commanders of the Philistine came out to battle. David has more success than the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is verse number 30 of chapter number 18. Chapter number 19. Watch how Jonathan responds. So, so Saul has said, David, go get these, kill these enemies. And he's devouring. He's trying to devour David. He's using his own kids as weapons in the middle of this. Watch how Jonathan responds. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, to all his servants, that they should kill David. Verse number one. So he goes to Jonathan and his servants and says, hey, guys, I need you guys to kill David. Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And he gives this whole thing to David. And then he goes, verse number four, he spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, let not the king sin against his servant David. He's not sinned against you. Your deeds, his deeds have brought good to you. And so Jonathan, in the middle of all this, is speaking reasonably. (gasps) Novel idea. He begins to defend David. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan in verse 6. And even he swears, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, reported to him all these things. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And so we find that once again, Jonathan is speaking reason to his dad. And he's saying, listen, no, he's done nothing wrong. But that doesn't last for very long. 
Because you see in verse number 8, there's a war again. David went out and fought. Verse number 9, again, a harmful spirit comes to Saul as he sits in his house with his spear in his hand, just like all sane people do. David was playing the lyre. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So not only twice, now a third time, Saul has actually tried to murder David. He sent messengers to David's house. Now he has married uh, Saul's daughter, Michal. He is now the son-in-law to the king. And Saul sends messengers to this house, to the house. But Michal says, oh no, David, if you don't escape, you're going tomorrow, you're going to die. And so she lets David down through the window. He flees and escapes. This is verse number 12 of chapter 19. He takes, she takes an image. So she takes like um, something that was able to fill the space of David, lays it on the bed, puts a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covers it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she says, he's sick. So now she's buying him time. They go back. I'm just going to finish up this story here. They go back to Saul and say, oh, David must be sick. Um, and so he's not able to come here to you. So you know what Saul says? Saul says, I don't care if he can't get up. Just bring me the whole bed. And so they go, they go. And when they go back, this is verse number 15. It says, bring him to me in bed that I might kill him. Verse 16, messengers came in. Behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair. And so now Saul brings his daughter in and says, why have you deceived me that you would let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And so David flees and he escapes. And he goes to Samuel at Aramah. And this is a really interesting story we'll just touch on very quickly. But he goes to Samuel. Samuel is the prophet that had anointed David. He goes here. And as he gets there, um, they told him, he told him all that Saul had done. And so Samuel and David go to the city of Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Saul sends messengers to take David. But watch what happens here. When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers. They also prophesied. And so in the middle of this, they're speaking the word of God. There's prophesying that's taking place. And then these other messengers come in, and they just join in the prophesying. Some messengers got back, word got back to Saul, so he sends other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. Anyone want to guess what happens? They also prophesied. Then he himself finally says, if I want to do it, I'm just going to do it myself. He goes to Ramah, comes to the great well that is in Siku, and he asks, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. The Spirit of God came upon him also as he went, and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And watch this, verse 24. He too stripped off his clothes, so it wasn't enough to prophesy. He strips off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, it's all also among the prophets. So in the middle of this, he is just incapable of actually doing what he set out to do. And so he spends the night naked and prophesying. Okay, please don't do that. Um, in the middle of all of this. But what we see over and over again with the friends of David, we see Jonathan, Michal, his wife, and then now Samuel. Over and over again, we see true friends defending this individual. What wrong had David done? Jonathan, even to the point that he's willing to confront his father face to face. Over and over and over again, these true friends are defending even as Saul seeks to devour him. 
Chapter number 20 is the last significant story that we have of Jonathan. David flees from Naoth and Ramah. And he goes to Jonathan and he says, what have I done? What's my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing great or small without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. He thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And so Jonathan says, don't worry about my father. He tells me everything. And David says, but he knows that we are friends. He's going to hide this from you. Hey, this is where he utters these words that are uh, reasonably famous within David's speech. He says, there's but a step between me and death. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm towing the line here. I'm, I'm, he's pursuing me. He's my best friend's dad. He's my father-in-law. He is my king. He is my boss. And then he wants me dead. Jonathan, I'm, I don't know how much longer I'm going to make it. Watch what Jonathan says. Whatever you say, I will do for you. And then David says to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, the stuff that we read a few minutes ago. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servants. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm not going to be at dinner the next couple of nights. If he asks where I was, tell him that I'm in Bethlehem. If he says, oh, okay, good. That means he is not actively or urgently trying to have me killed. But if he gets angry, it means that his plans are falling through. It means that whatever he's scheming isn't happening, and so he'll be angry. And so he says, he says here, verse number uh, 10, David says to Jonathan, will you tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Jonathan said to David, so they, they leave the place and make sure they go somewhere private. They can have this conversation. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. What's the foundation of their friendship here? Well, it's God. He says, as much as God has brought us together as friends, understand this to me. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. So what is he saying? He's saying, David, obviously, if there's good news, I'm going to tell you. But if there's bad news, it's my responsibility to tell you. It's my responsibility to help you. It's my responsibility to care for you. And so, as he does all of these things, David and Jonathan make this plan. Verse number 18, tomorrow's the new moon. You will be missed. Your seat will be empty on the third day. Go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And so there's this place that they had known that David had to hide before. 
He says, on the third day, go down there. By that time, I will know what's happening. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. Behold, I will send the boy saying, go and find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it's safe for you to come and there's no danger. But if I say to you, look, the arrows are beyond you. So they're too far. Don't bother with them. Then go for the Lord has sent you away. And so they come up with this code, this system. He says, if I, if I tell the boy to come back, then you come back with him. If I say, no, 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 those arrows are gone too far, then you know that's gone. And you need to run. You need to leave. As for the matter which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. But what do we see of this true friend here? We see that a true friend listens. A true friend listens. But what we're about to see is that toxic relationships leverage. And so this true friend, Jonathan, he hears David's concerns, doesn't he? He hears David's concerns. David says, listen, your father is still coming for me. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I don't even want to show up for dinner because I'm afraid he's going to take me and have me killed. He's getting more and more bold with these things. And David hears this, digests it. And what does he do? He comforts his friend David. He says, David, listen, I hear your concerns, and I'm going to do everything I can as God is my witness to make sure that you stay safe. And so David trusts Jonathan enough to hide where Jonathan knows he is and wait for Jonathan. What's Saul doing in all this time? The new moon comes. The king sits in his seat, verse 25, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, in accordance with the plan, David asked me to leave, asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, let me go. Our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. And remember, the, uh, they were going to wait. So if, if Saul said, oh, okay, good. I'm glad he was able to get away and be with his family. Then, okay, things are good for now. But if he becomes angry, we'll know there's a plan in place. Watch what happens. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I just have to wonder if, the, if his mother was in that room. She's like, what did I do here? What in the world? But he says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send him, send and bring him to me. He shall surely die. And so we see that he pulls out all of the leverage that he can against Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, he begins to insult him. Isn't that one of the first things within a toxic relation? Oh, don't you, you are this way. 
Why do you this way? The questions, the, the accusations that begin to come out of Saul towards his own son. And then he goes past that and begins to manipulate him and say, don't you understand what's at stake here, Jonathan? This isn't for me. This is for you. Who was it for? <laughs> it was for Saul. But Saul says, hey, Jonathan, this, I'm just doing this for your own good. Your kingdom won't be established if David's around. But Jonathan responds to his father. Verse number 32, he answers Saul. He says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul answers this in a very uh, reasonable way. Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month. He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And so Jonathan continues with the plan. The next day, he goes out on the third day, takes his boy with him, this uh, servant, and he fires these arrows. And he says, run and find these arrows. And as the boy ran, he shot the arrow beyond him. And the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot. Jonathan called after and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Isn't it too far? Jonathan called after the boy. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, came to his master. The boy knew nothing. Only David and Jonathan knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go and carry them to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And so what we're seeing here is they, they're, they're shifting their plans because David was supposed to leave, right? But Jonathan apparently believed it to be safe enough, and David believed it to be safe enough that they said they, they still got together even after all of this. And so J David makes his way to Jonathan. And what we see is we see they, they kissed one another and wept with one another. Very common in, in this space. That's a kiss on the cheek, uh, uh, still a common Middle Eastern, Near Eastern greeting. And, and these two men, they have this deep, profound friendship as they know the things that are taking place, they understand that their friendship, their relationship will never be the same. Now Saul has taken these steps and he's wanted to remove, John, remove David from Jonathan's presence. And, and he says this, Jonathan to David, go in peace. We have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So understand this, true friends strengthen faith. Well, toxic relationships erode it. In the middle of all of this, we have Jonathan and David. Even in the middle of these difficult, discouraging, disheartening times, how are they interacting with one another? He's saying, listen, God's going to take care of this. Even though you and I have to leave each other's presence, even though you need to go for your own safety, God is between us. Not only that, but he's going to be between our families. God's going to take care of all of these things. God knows, he understands, he sees what is taking place. And so they, Jonathan here strengthens David's faith. He doesn't tear it down. There are multiple times throughout all of this, even as we come to chapter number 21, as Saul is pursuing David, we see David actually do some kind of dumb stuff. 
Um, we see him go to the Philistines thinking they're going to help him. Who are the Philistines? Oh, yeah. The guy, uh, remember Goliath of Gath, right? Philistine, uh, champion of Philistine, well-known guy. David killed him. Uh, remember the, the, the bride's price that Saul required of David? Um, you don't think that that made its rounds in the Philistine camps? Okay. And he, at some point, becomes so afraid, and his faith erodes through this dynamic with Saul, the point that he runs to the Philistines for help in chapter number 21. But Jonathan is constantly saying, David, God is going to take care of you. David, God has this plan in place. David, God is going to make sure that not only you, but your lineage, your family is established in the way that he has promised. You don't think by this time that Jonathan is fully aware that David has been anointed king? Of course he is. Jonathan knows he's never going to lead the kingdom. And you know what, Jonathan, because of his dynamic and his relationship with God... Jonathan doesn't care. Jonathan doesn't mind. Jonathan is fine with it. We don't see any resistance whatsoever to Jonathan saying the kingdom will not be yours. He says, if God wants it to be David's, so be it. And Jonathan strengthens the faith of his friend, even while Saul pulls all of those around him away from godliness. His servants, he pushes into wickedness. His son, Jonathan, he pushes towards wickedness. All of the people surrounding him, what is Saul doing? Who does Saul build faith in at all? No one, because Saul is not a godly man. Even when he was a good man, he wasn't a godly man, but now he's not either one of those things. And so we see that over and over and over again, Saul and his dynamics, he is eroding the faith of those around him. As we look at all of this, we see David and we see Jonathan, and we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, hey, listen, we look at these models and we see the way that these guys behave and we can understand some principles and emulate that at the same time, I think I'd be doing you a disservice. I didn't take a moment to speak of the true and better friend, even than Jonathan. From a human perspective, can we, can we name a better friend? From a human perspective, is there anyone that we can look at and be like, wow, I just want, I want someone to care about me that way. I want a friendship that someone just is so like, compassionate about my well-being. How incredible is this? But can I tell you, this pales in comparison to the friendship of Jesus. See, John chapter number 15, I think this is incredible, the way that he says this. John chapter 15, beginning in verse number 12. Even as we understand that Jonathan risked his life for David, I want you to understand very clearly today that Jesus gave his life for you. Jonathan risked his life for David, didn't he? He angered Saul. His life was threatened. He was come against. But Jesus, not only did he, he Jesus didn't just come to this earth to risk his life for you. He came to give his life for you. Do you hear the difference? In John chapter number 15, Jesus speaks these words, beginning in verse number 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Wow. Wow. He's telling those people who believe in him, love each other like I love you. And then he goes on to define the way that he loves us. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. What is he speaking of? What's his commandment? His belief. This whole book of John is all about that you might believe on his name. John makes that very, very clear towards the end of this book. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so you will love one another. You see, our godly friendships are not just, in fact, they're not even primarily for our own well-being. Our godly friendships are in response to the gospel of Jesus and his words in our lives. You follow me? What is he saying here? He says, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. He says, love each other the way that I've loved you. Oh, yeah, and I've loved you in the way that no one else can even compare because greater love, it just doesn't exist than someone would lay down his life for his friends. And you know when Jesus says this, John chapter number 15, Jesus says this literally the night before, the evening before he goes to the cross. Within 24 hours, his life will be laid down for these people he is speaking to. And so he looks at them and says, hey, you guys love each other like I love you. And in 24 hours, they're about to know what that means. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one with no sin, the one who had never done wrong, always done the things that please the Father. He had come into this world and he'd been surrounded by sin, just like you and, our, you and I are every day, yet he never participates. Always without sin. And then what does he do? Gives his life for his friends. Because you see, his friends that he's speaking to here, they weren't perfect. Far from it. They were human beings, just like us. Sinful. Wicked. Uh, if you're like me, as you look through this, there are times that you might look at me like, oh, yeah, you know what? I can see that, Jonathan. There are times that you're like, ah, oh, crud. Saul seems a little too familiar. Jesus, the perfect friend, comes, gives his life, not merely for his friends, but for sinners, those who were once his enemies. He now welcomes and says, I don't even call you servants anymore. I'm calling you a friend. And so, here even as we look at Jonathan, Jonathan isn't the end of the story. Jonathan is pointing us to a true and a better friend, Jesus. You see, today, as we look at all of these things, perhaps that's the friendship that you're missing. Maybe there's never been a time in your life that you have believed in Jesus, asked him to save you from sin, just like he was about to do, to lay down his life. You see, he did it for them and he did it for you. Your goodness, your works can never get you to God. But Jesus can. Jesus can. So today, we've looked at a lot of different things. This topic of godly friendship. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. How are you demonstrating that love of Jesus to others? 
Are you remembering the love of Jesus towards you? Because if, if you understand Jesus' love to you, then you will demonstrate Jesus' love to others. That's a natural byproduct. It's going to happen. But at the same time, maybe today you say, I've never experienced that. I've never placed my faith in Jesus alone for my salvation. Maybe today would be the day that you would make that decision.